fact that we walk around with needlessly high levels of stress uh, relating to each other in inflated levels of fear. It seems that the reason that we human beings live at this constant edge of suspense, fear, heightened aggression, heightened states of survival is because even though the threats have been removed from our lives, we're not surrounded by the saber-toothed tigers or the other tribes, you know, threatening to spear us at any moment, but what we are capable, on the other hand, of doing is in transforming actually benign experiences, such as hearing that maybe they might be downsizing a workforce or uh, changes in the stock market or um, looks that are uh, unfriendly on the street or a lack of connection by an attachment figure. We can transform these benign experiences into events that trigger the fight, flight, or freeze system in the amygdala of the midbrain, and that's what releases the cortisol. In other words, we can worry about stuff that's not threatening. We can create threats out of thin air. Many of us can worry about events that are unforeseeably in the future. Many of us can worry about our reputations or what other people think about us or about stuff that in no way affects our survival. And yet, it activates literally the same survival mechanisms that create these uh, neural states that are not positive for us. The Buddha called this uh, the will, this will to survive that's set, uh, this heightened survivalist state, bawatana, which means the thirst to live at all costs, to survive at all costs. The kind of heightened sense that we're always under attack and always have to look after number one and always have to worry what other people think about us and always have to stay on guard and be hypervigilant. And it's a big, important role in the Buddha's understanding of what creates our constant thirst to acquire. The idea is the more threatened we feel, the more under attack we feel, the more we are default set to do one out of two things, to isolate and hide and protect ourselves or avoid difficult situations, or B we consume and accumulate and acquire and hoard things to amass enough solid material and monetary wealth and stuff that apparently makes us feel safe. Now, why does accumulation, consuming, purchasing, buying, shopping make us feel safe? Well, it turns out that every time we swipe that credit card, push that buy button on Amazon, uh, even shop, for a good bargain on the internet, it releases dopamine. What does dopamine do? Well, dopamine is a wonderful short blast of utter joy, a sense that we are powerful, that nothing can happen to us. In other words, it is liquid or hormonal security. It makes us feel powerful and secure. So every time we shop for something, buy, purchase, eat, 
have sex, have a great thought that we think is really, really bright that other people want to hear. All of that stuff triggers the release of dopamine, which makes us feel really safe for about 20 minutes. And then we have to repeat, rinse and repeat over and over and over again. That's the thing about dopamine. It provides us with immediate, very, very experiential felt sense of power and security, but it doesn't last. It goes away. Freud noticed the connection between pleasurable things and survival advantages. Everything that gives us a short-term survival advantage, having somebody say something nice about us, getting a like on Facebook, having uh, an image, a selfie of an image get liked, having uh, somebody find us attractive, something, buying something, consuming something, getting a new iPad or iPhone, uh, all of the consuming, acquiring, it releases dopamine that creates the sense of survival advantage. Survival advantage and pleasure are deeply intermixed. The Buddha called it tana and bhavatana. They're completely tied into each other. Freud called the will to survive the pleasure principle. So what makes us feel good in the short term is almost always things that provide a sense of immediate advantage, getting something. So, um, what feels good, what gives us a sense of power and uh, makes us feel um, uh, surrounded by things, feels good, provides dopamine. It's not surprising that statistically people who turn into hoarders in old age, if you look back to their childhood years, you find moments where the family structure suddenly fell apart due to a firing, a death of a caretaker, a sudden drop in financial health of the family. And so the child's felt sense of security is um, no longer there. And throughout the rest of life, the person equates security with hoarding, surrounding oneself with objects and things. So. Just as the will to survive is associated with short-term pleasures, there are, however, other ways to feel secure that do not produce short-term pleasures, but actually produce long-term lasting solutions. Barbara Fredrickson, in her research, notes that there are actually two ways to deactivate the fight, flight, or freeze structure of the sympathetic nervous system, to strengthen the parasympathetic nervous system, to strengthen the vagal vagus tone, which allows you to override needlessly fast heart rates, to reduce the level of cortisol. It's all actually, she published all of her research in this wonderful book, uh, Love 2.0. The two ways are, one, I'm going to read you, because I, uh, I think it's actually worth hearing it from her words. One is, Disclosing feelings verbally and non-verbally by making more eye contact and meaningful gestures. Research shows that behaving, that connecting raises your naturally occurring levels of oxytocin. And oxytocin curbs the stress-induced rises in heart rate and blood pressure, reduces feelings of depression, and increases your pain threshold. 
So in other words, if we don't want to live in a constantly activated, hypervigilant state of suspicion, fear, activation, we can either spend our lives shopping for those short-term pleasures that will last about 20 minutes, or we can actually develop mutually respectful, empathetic, tolerant, kind relationships where we express our emotional states and rather than try to fix or solve each other with suggestions, we simply listen, nod, and normalize each other's emotions by saying, oh yes, I know what loneliness, sadness, fear, aggression, frustration feels like. In that mutual connection, we provide each other with emotion regulation, which is a profound way to deactivate the amygdala and allow us to wind down or put the brakes on the fight, flight, or freeze, survival at all costs, worry about everything, hypervigilance that we can live in very easily in our inflated consumer-based uh, society. But there's also, now if, there was, if, if that was the only solution, fair enough. We'd have to spend the rest of our lives connecting all the time to deactivate. And it's a very powerful tool, and I don't think, and as the Buddha noted, connecting with wise spiritual people is the foundation of the spiritual journey. The Buddha deeply, deeply respected the work that two human beings do when they sit and they talk about their emotional experience, and they disclose it, not just through words, but vulnerable tones of voice, physical expressions, expressions of sadness, whatever. There's a second way to deactivate the fight, flight, or freeze mechanism. Fredrickson wrote, Study participants who had been assigned at random to learn meditation techniques such as loving-kindness meditation within a matter of months demonstrated healthier vagal vagus tones, which puts the brake on the big jumps in your heart rate that are caused by stress, fear, or exertion. Your vagus nerve also increases the routine efficiency of your heart beat by beat, and more precisely, breath by breath. And then she goes on to say that studies of meditators show that they also have higher levels of oxytocin and lower levels of cortisol, which means that our immune functions are better and that our long-term memories function better. And if you want to read more about this, the latest studies by Harvard, by Shelley Lazar, goes into all of the wonderful neural benefits of having a meditation practice. So, in essence, if we don't want to live in our default fight, flight, or freeze at all costs survival-based modes, the way out is either connect with emotionally tolerant available people or B, develop some kind of internal awareness that allows you to switch off and allows you to develop inner calm. This is why the Buddha said that the goal of the Dharma is not to become actually better people in terms of achieving a better personality. It's actually to end the needless fixation on death and fear and aggression and surviving at all costs. It's to end bhavatana. It's to end that state of feeling that we constantly need to worry about uh, looking out for the next threat or opportunity and can actually relax into our lives. You know, uh, essentially, another way of saying this is that we're updating the human operating system. 
we are all born with brains that are brilliant, brilliant machines capable of more processing than all of the computers on the earth. And yet, the operating systems we all work with are about 10,000 years old in that they're set for situations where we're constantly under attack, where the food sources are scarce and unreliable, where we could be killed or attacked at any moment. So all we're doing when we connect with other people and we have a meditation practice is we are doing that thing that your uh, Mac tries to get you to do, that thing that says, would you like to install the latest operating? You go, no, 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 no. Every time we shop, when we feel sad or eat, when we feel anxious or drink, when we feel overwhelmed, we're saying, no, 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 I don't want to install the latest operating system. I want to stick with the old one that's having me live as if I could die any moment. So I might as well get that short-term blast of dopamine. So the Buddha provided the five spiritual faculties as a way to encourage people to move into a path that would deactivate Bhavatana, that would create what he called a state of spiritual ease and peace within. So Indriya, the five spiritual practices, came to the Buddha when he was on the verge of his enlightenment, a figure called Mara, which is essentially the Buddha's shadow self, the part of the Buddha that was his needlessly activated, fearful, consumerist, materialist self, came to him and said, this is too hard. We're going to die out here. What the hell are we doing? Let's go back to where there's money and wealth and attractive people. Let's not stay out here in the, in the jungle meditating. This is not... All of this work is a lot of, uh, a lot of meaningless effort. And we all go through this because after I give this talk and you all go home and tomorrow you wake up and a lot of us will go, yeah, I know that meditation is kind of good and I'm sure it works for everybody else, but I've got a really complicated brain up here. i got a lot of stuff going on and I know that that stuff works for that guy, the weird Buddhist guy. And it's nice to hear him talk sometimes, but I'm going to go to Saks. <laughs> I'm going to go to Bloomingdale's, whatever. So, um, the Buddha responded to Mara with these five tools. He said that in seeing suffering, and seeing that all of the wealth that I accumulated before I developed the spiritual practice wasn't making me feel more secure. It wasn't making me connect better with others. It wasn't making me happier. In fact, when surrounded by all that wealth that the Buddha had before he engaged at age 28 on his spiritual journey, uh, and he lived a pretty fabulous life, but he wasn't particularly secure when he first encountered a really meaningful uh, interaction with somebody who was really sick or dying. He found the experience to be disconcerting because he, it, all of the wealth and money didn't help him uh, face the inevitability of death and old age and sickness. It actually scared the hell out of him. So he realized that all of the money and wealth and the accumulation of 
recognition and career and all the stuff that we build and all the stuff that we we uh, uh, acquire, they're all really nice, but they don't, in terms of addressing uh, the meaningful things that are going to create a lot of fear and are going to activate us again and again and again, like the times where we experience losses, the times where people say nasty things about us or to us, the frustrating events of life, having a lot of stuff isn't really going to help in those situations. So he said one thing that is the foundation is developing what he called one sada. Sada is the Buddhist word for conviction. It's a sense of knowing that the only solution to our problems is not just in consuming or acquiring or trying to worry about what our reputations are, but in fact that there is a real value to having an inner practice. And it's not just for other people, but it's actually for ourselves. One way we can develop a sense of conviction is we can see, you know what, even though I have a job, even though I have a place to live, even though I'm not starving, even though I have... Um, I have a blog, or I don't know what, even though I, I have the latest iPhone, even though I am able to travel on a vacation once in a while, even though I'm not, I'm not living like a Neanderthal, I'm not feeling very secure, I'm not feeling always happy, I'm not feeling content, I'm actually feeling there's something wrong with me, there's something missing in my life that I need to get and get and get more, that I, that I can't relax, that I can't enjoy my life, that I can't feel good about myself. And so the conviction develops out of recognizing that there's suffering in our life. If you want to develop conviction in an easier way rather than acknowledging suffering, for me, I developed conviction by hanging around spiritual practitioners that were a lot further along the path than I was, especially 20 years ago when I started really, really, uh, really, uh, I made it like a centerpiece. I had grown up in a Buddhist practicing family, but for easily the first 15 years of my practice, it was just something I did. It was not at the center of my life. And then when I got to my 30s, and I got sober, I decided I needed to have a spiritual practice. This was 20 year, 21 years ago. And so I really started hanging around Buddhist centers, and I started seeking out monks and spiritual teachers that to me seemed pretty, um, seemed pretty calm, serene, intelligent, real, honest, not pretending to be above it all, but a, a meaningful kind of serenity that resonated with me, and I, I hung out with these guys like Tanasar Bhikkhu and Ajahn Suchito and Amaro and all these monks that I became attendants to when they would visit New York, and I found that all of these people, they didn't have, none of these monks had any money, they had no acquisitions, they all lived in kutis, little tents, or in monasteries, they had no penny to their name, they didn't know where they were going to get their food the next day, they lived in a way that would have me in a non-stop state of panic all 
the time. I mean, I would wake up with a neurotic, you know, what the hell? I don't, I don't know where I'm going to get my food tomorrow. I don't know where I'm going to get my iced coffee. I don't even have any money. <laughs> what the hell's gone wrong? And these, but Suchito just lived in that his entire life, and he is the guy. The guy, I never see any signs of stress or anxiety. He walks like like a damned Martian. There's like floating on the ground. I am, I am. But he's actually a real guy, but his body shows no sense of any stress. There's not the, you know, tight shoulders. His shoulders are always relaxed. His belly's always soft. His breath, you can tell, is always, his out-breath is always really long. It was like, and when he walks into a room, there's this really even, just, un, he's not anxious to get to the front of the room to speak. He's happy at every step. Moving to the, you're like, what the hell? You know? You're just as happy being there, in, walking into the room as when you get to the chair where you sit. That's incredible. There's no moment that he's like just throwing away. And so being around that instilled conviction in the spiritual path for me. So you can either get conviction by the fact that you see that you're suffering and that you've got to find another way, or you can just hang out with people that are, you know, are spiritual practice, practitioners who have been doing it for a while and seem pretty happy in their life and are not making a lot of money. And uh, <laughs> you, can get, you can get a sense of, okay, there's other ways to develop ease and peace in life. So the next is wiriya, which means... Uh, the constant effort that we put in to simply notice when our minds are slipping again and again into the thoughts that needlessly activate fear and aggression and survival at all cost mode, and that we gently take the mind from those thoughts and we shift them back into the present moment. Why do we shift it back into the present moment? Well, here's a clue. If you are worrying, if you are catastrophizing, if you are activating yourself, I can guarantee you one thing. Nothing is going on at that moment. At all. Because if you are worrying, it means that you are actually not in a life or death situation where things are attacking you. We only go into worry, which is called in neuroscience default mode network, in the absence of external stimuli that is threatening. So, paradoxically, human beings most activate us ourselves when we don't have an externally, or at least a task, to occupy us when we are free to let our minds wander. If you would like to know more about this, there was a clinical study by Killingsworth and Gilbert, also at Harvard, I guess Harvard, is uh, my go-to material these days. Um, and they did this research with 2,000 people that they would contact at random and have them fill out a very simple baseline happiness test. And they found over the course of months with these 2,000 people that people were happiness, happiest when they weren't allowing their minds to wander wherever they wanted, where their minds were engaged in some kind of task. This is why when the Buddha described meditation, he didn't just say, just sit down in a comfy chair and let your mind wander wherever you want it to go. Because 
That would be no different from what you're doing every time you sit behind the computer and after you get a little bored with the Amazon or the CNN or whatever, we start to worry about, oh, damn, I wonder what that person thinks about me or how much money am I going to have when I'm 67 or whatever. So we are actually at our happiest when we set a task. And for the Buddha, this foundation of setting a task is noticing when we are in the thoughts that needlessly activate us. What are those needlessly activating thoughts? One, what do other people think about me? There's no need for you ever to have that thought. It doesn't keep you, make you any happier. It doesn't make you authentic. It does the opposite. It makes you want to present inauthentic emotions to get liked by other people. The other is what's going to happen to me in the unknowable future. That activates the, the ventral medial axis of the left hemisphere, which is synonymous with stress activation. Comparing ourselves with others, especially the most successful person in your college class, the person who's written five books or is already in seven movies or started a startup that's doing well, comparing your life against somebody's externals, that's a surefire way. And instead, bringing the mind again and again back to watching the breath, relaxing the out-breath, listening to the sounds, feeling the sensations that are present, reconnecting with the beauty of being alive, landing in life. You will find that the moment you are activating yourself, the present moment is always a refuge, a place to go. The third faculty is sati, mindfulness, which the Buddha essentially maintains is in order to do the work of noting when we are uh, lost in activating thoughts, speculation about the future, what other people think about us, taking things personally that are not personal, like old age, sickness, death, frustrations, and stuff like that, taking breakups as if it's we're the only people that have gone through a breakup, etc., is to have a degree of mindfulness, knowing where our mind, our attention is, and being able to ask ourselves, is this a skillful thing I'm focusing on? The other part of mindfulness is if it's not, just bring the awareness back into the body and relax whatever is contracted or tight. So you'll find that if you are ever worried about the things that most of the time activate us back into the fight, flight, or freeze, the survival at all costs, you will find that we're generally in some form of speculation. What's going to happen to me? Why? What is this person thinking about me? What's going on in this relationship? I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Bring it back to what we do know, what we can connect with, which is going on in the breath and in the body and just relax that. You'll find that over time, as it becomes an ingrained process, it actually develops a lot of peace. This brings us to, to element number four, which is the Buddha said that the practice should be easeful, not stressful. If we're trying to develop a lasting state of ease, it can't be something that requires a lot of, um, it can't pr produce stress. It has to be a process that feels easeful, creates tranquility and serenity. So much of the work we're doing is simply in letting go of the obsessive thoughts 
that snare the mind and create stress, just dropping it and just relaxing into our life right now as it is. Here I am at Dharma Punks, Tuesday night, nothing's going on, surrounded by spiritual people, nothing to worry about, nothing to worry about in this moment. Landing again and again and again with where we are, how does it feel in the body. None of this is supposed to uh, be exhausting or create tension or create tightness or require a great deal of force. In fact, the paradoxical thing about spiritual practice is not only does it provide a lasting state of serenity and peace that undoes the sympathetic nervous system and our fight, flight, or freeze mechanism, but it also feels good. It also feels good. We don't actually have to be constantly trying to secure our survival. We are actually more likely to respond to threats as they arise in our life if we're relaxed. A friend of mine is a really terrifyingly good martial arts person. He can beat the hell out of most human beings. But he says that a bulk of the work that they do, and I have to believe him because I don't get anywhere near martial arts, but he says the bulk of the work they do is in relaxing their bodies so that they're not tense, that they're not tight, that they're not in stress, that they're actually completely relaxed when they go into, into a bout with each other so they can respond to each moment, each move that's completely unexpected with a fresh, intuitive approach. Likewise, we'll find in our life that the more we worry or we're caught in worry, the less we think outside of the box. Those experiences in life where we lose our keys and then we add onto the story with, I'm going to be late for work, it's going to be a terrible day, why do I always lose the keys, what's the matter with me, who moves my keys? <laughs> what happens is we look in the same two damn places over and over and over, and they're supposed to be right here, where are they? So we don't think out of the box, we don't respond intuitively, we don't, um, we don't encounter solutions. What we do is just wind up ingraining more and more habitually uh, routinized processes. The more cortisol <laughs> is present, the more the striatum is triggered, the more the striatum is triggered, the more we just go into our ingrained survival mode and just repetitive behaviors. Finally, Wisdom is reminding ourselves again and again as a support to faith that every time we find ourselves tempted to try to find the way out of our worry, our fear, our anxiety by accumulating, by shopping, by trying to get everybody in the world to like us, by constantly being caught up in... Uh, addictive pleasures or addictive routines, reminding ourselves that that solution doesn't last in the long term. The neural benefits are very brief, and we're always left high and dry. And frankly, studies show by Seligman that, um, that literally the dopamine rewards that we get from shopping or acquiring 
uh, we easily habituate to. So we have to buy more and more, we have to spend more and more, we have to drink more and more, we have to accumulate more and more to get the same neural rewards. Whereas oxytocin and, um, and serotonin and uh, the, the neural rewards created by developing an inner peace do not require greater and greater and greater efforts. You don't, if you get, if a 20-minute meditation is what your practice is, you will, for the rest of your life, get the same amount of ease and the same amount of joy and tranquility. You'll never habituate to it. You'll never need to do more if you don't want to do more. And it will give you a very predictable, long-lasting sense of security. Coming in for a landing, taxiing up to the to the uh, terminal, arriving at our destination in life, which is this very moment in time, and feeling like we've really reached a place where we give ourselves permission to. Uh, not accomplish or do or fix or solve or worry or narrate, but just really arriving at this place at this time, like one of those destinations in life where you've been looking forward to reaching a, a remote location for a vacation or a a special place where you give yourself permission to uh, drop all of the busyness and agendas and that moment when you get to that favorite spot at a beach where you put down your beach chair and your blankets and whatever else and you give yourself permission. There's some... Uh, Cushions in the front. So, uh, just treating this moment like it's that place that you've been, that time, that destination, that that sacred arrival where you can truly land in life. So, anything that wants to pull you away from soaking in this experience. Just note it and just promise it you can pick it up later, whether it's a thought about the day or the week ahead or unresolved issues or conflicts or whatever wants your attention. Just promise that you can attend to it after you've had a break. 
Einstein used to famously take walks on the beach where he would put aside the theories and puzzles he was working on, knowing that simply that walk on the beach where he relaxed and put the issues aside would allow him to return and view a problem from a completely different perspective, which often held the key. So generally, when we are continually in our lives, in busyness, the ongoing perspective is that we have to fix and solve and address and deal with everything and achieve. And when we take a break and land in life, one new perspective it provides is maybe we don't have to do anything. Or maybe there's an entirely different solution available to us. So one way that it's useful to settle the mind is to unify attention around an anchor. An anchor is an ongoing sensation or experience that we can focus our attention to that helps us essentially get some detachment from the thoughts that usually uh, try to s snag and hijack us, especially when we uh, try to develop some peace. So an anchor can be just feeling the sensation of the in-breath and the out-breath, or it can be in this room, it's a wonderful room for using sounds, listening to the sounds of the street appear and disappear, new sounds, replacing old sounds, just receiving without visualizing what's creating the sounds. You can use metta, which is a very simple phrase you repeat, in the mind that denotes a spiritual goal. For example, a good metaphrase is, may I feel safe, may I feel peaceful, or may I know true happiness. So just keep whatever anchor you use, it could be a very simple image in your mind. It could be a color you keep 
visualizing a very simple image of a candle, a place that you know very well. The anchor really isn't that important. What is important is keeping it available so that when very attractive, intriguing thoughts appear that want to uh, pull you away from landing right here and now in life and relaxing into this moment that you have a way to keep you detached. And another important element is when you do find that you've been snared by a thought, you've been pulled away from the present moment, hijacked and pulled into a fantasy or a memory or a kind of daydream or that when you realize that don't add any frustration or judgment or any criticism of yourself just feel a sense of pride that you're developing a spiritual practice that allows you to wake up the waking up from a thought or a fantasy is really completely related to the ultimate liberation provided by spiritual practice, waking up into the fullness of life itself. So it's really worth feeling a sense of respect for your endeavor, being very compassionate and kind and just escorting your mind back again and again to your anchor in the present.
So for the second part of the meditation, you can let go of your anchor. And assuming that your mind is a little bit more settled, I invite you to bring your awareness to the part of your internal experience where you see visual thoughts like memories and images. Some people see it in roughly the area they associate with the forehead when their eyes are closed or the eyes. Kind of the inner movie screen where our fantasies play out in the mind. Anything that if I ask you to visualize what your apartment looks like, where you construct an image. So keep an eye out for the images that the mind constructs to grab our attention. And then when it does, see if you can develop the practice of the moment you notice that a thought is present, Bring your awareness into the body below and see if you can find what part of the body gets tight or clenched when a thought appears. It's interesting that when the mind is engaged in thinking, not only does it raise pulse rate, but to the degree that a image is different from the world around us, we tend to also have a physical tightening, as if the body, knowing that we're not aware of the world around us, that we're lost in a thought, becomes contracted and armored. So just use your practice right now to see the way that Whenever a thought appears, what happens to the body? So you can even invite a thought up that's been bothering you of late. A thought about someone or financial fears or something that actually we've been fighting with. And instead, when that thought is present, go into the body, see what gets tight, and then relax, breathe into that tightness, and notice how it changes the quality of thought. It's actually a very interesting way to work with obsessive thoughts, which is not to fight them, not to agree with them, but constantly to see what happens to the body, relax the body, and then note how the thought becomes less uh, insistent.
So as we reach the time that we begin the transition from meditation, as we begin to pay more attention to the sounds and sensations of contact arriving from the outside world, First, it's always worthwhile reflecting on the virtue of a spiritual practice which allows us to cultivate uh, ease within. It's one of the very few ways to actually deactivate the fear parts of the brain, the amygdala. It's a great benefit to sustaining both physical and mental health, but also, more important, if we have a source of ease and peace within, we will find that we wind up with far less conflict in our lives. We're far less reactive. Any form of spiritual practice provides a kind of ground that provides a kind of way to disengage from the frustrations of life and view each experience from a different perspective. In any event, it's not just for our benefit, but for the benefit of those around us that we know some inner peace and that our project is not harmful to other beings, it doesn't consume the world's resources, it doesn't uh, exploit or harm others. So it's a blameless practice. And when there's a blameless practice in your life, it's worth feeling some recognition of your efforts in it. When you hear the sound of the bowl, uh, it will be tempting to simply open your eyes and look around, but again, what we want to do is look at the ground and very slowly open up the eyes and integrate sight into all the other awareness available, the body sensations, the breath, moods, feelings, sounds. There's a rich, complex sensory world around you and in inside of you but very often we simply let sight and thoughts completely push everything else out of the way. So let's see if we can have a balanced awareness. 